Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining in today, which is April 11th, 2018. We have an exciting show for you today. We're going to be talking about a book that was written by Mark Oristano, and it's called A Surgeon's Story. Mark is a distinguished, I mean, he's had a distinguished career as a professional writer and a journalist. He's um, been an actor, a sports reporter, and he's worked, I'd say, with a lot of notable broadcasts. Um, he... Um, when he started to pursue his broadcasting career and his interests, he was involved in the theater as well in the summer productions. And um, since then, he's finished his second book, Surgeon's Story, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, 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 Mark. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I always like to start the show out by asking I know you've had an awful lot of um, different career paths, but what initially got you started? Well, my my first career, the one that I've had the longest, I was a sportscaster for 30 years, and um, okay. I was I attended Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, and I majored in mass communication, and I was chosen for an internship the summer after my junior year, and I went to work for a man named Vern Lundquist, who is one of the great sportscasters in the country. And uh, it just went on from there. I got involved with the Dallas Cowboys doing radio broadcasts for them and, and, and doing some front office work for them. And doing, I spent about 30 years hanging around the NFL. And then uh, branched out. I'd always been a writer, so I branched out when I left broadcasting into writing a little more. And uh, this book, Surgeon Story, came out of the fact that for 21 years, I have been a volunteer at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, one of the most renowned pediatric hospitals in the country. And uh, I got to know Dr. Christine Gulisarian, one of the world's great pediatric heart surgeons and one of the nicest people in the world. And I just, uh, the more I learned about her and the more I heard about her, I said, we need to write a book. And she said, about what? And I said, about you. And she said, nobody wants to read about me. And I said, everybody wants to read about you. They just don't <laughs> know it yet. And so uh, I spent five years following her around and watching surgeries and going into patient family meetings and going on rounds. And, uh, and we wrote the book. Five years you followed her around? Mm-hmm. On and off, obviously. I saw, yeah, well, obviously on and off. I didn't go home with her, but uh, yeah. I saw 35-something surgeries, including five heart transplants and a bunch of other kinds. Uh, I just watched everything she did. She, she allowed me complete access to her professional life, and, uh, and I got to see what it's like being a heart surgeon. What would you say is your, the key message of the book? 
the key message is that there are, as most of the news that we hear about our healthcare system in America is bad, let's face it, and most of it has to do with insurance problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a perception, I think, that's been fostered by movie and TV shows that surgeons are all gigantic, egotistical jerks who can't, be, who can't deal with people as humans, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. this book puts the lie to a lot of that because Dr. G, as she is known, uh, is, is as very down-to-earth as can be. She just happens to – she's a very ordinary person with a very extraordinary skill set. And uh, she doesn't think that what she does is any great special thing that entitles her to any being put up on a pedestal. And she's just, uh, when she goes on rounds in the morning and they look at all of the patients, the heart patients in the hospital, she stops into every room and talks to every family, even if the kid's not her patient. She stops in and talks to them and finds out how they're doing and do they need anything. And she's just, she, she delivers care in more than just the, the medical sense. She's a very caring mm-hmm. person. It's a great feeling. Who is her mentor? Oh, my goodness, there were hundreds of them. And as you go through the book, there time and time again, there uh, are, are surgeons and teachers. And uh, one of her first, when she was a young girl at, a, at an all-girls all school in Boston, where she's from, called the Belmont School, she, um, I'm sorry, called the Windsor School, uh, uh, the Greek teacher showed her some, some things in Greek and, uh, and showed her how the word biology was, came out of the, words, the, the Greek words bios and logos, study of life. And all of a sudden, this kind of light went on in Chris's head, and she thought, wow, if I learn Greek, I'll understand everything. So she learned Greek, and in fact, her undergraduate degree from Harvard is in Greek classics. She can read the Odyssey to you in the original Greek. Good heavens. And she turned that into one of the great medical careers. Mm. So she's obviously a genius. Yep. Well, her intellect is not to be believed, but again... It's not on display in a flashy way. She's just as down to earth as can be. She loves baseball. We go to baseball games. You know, when the when the Red Sox are in town playing the Rangers, we go to the games and we have a great time. And she's she's just a normal person. So let's start getting into into um, into the actual content of the book. Um, you can start wherever you wish. Well, probably the most celebrated story about her has to do with a 13-year-old boy named Andrew Madden. This was back in 2007. And Andrew came to Children's with something called idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy, meaning that his heart muscle was getting bigger and bigger and tougher and tougher, and they didn't know why. And the only option left for him at this point was a transplant. And he came to Children's in September of 2007, and he and Chris, as soon as they met, found out that they were both huge Boston Red Sox fans. And... Uh, Dr. G at one point said to Andrew, as he was as he was in the hospital waiting to get a donor heart, she said, you know, if you do what we tell you and you come through this okay, she said, maybe we can go to Fenway Park in Boston and see a game because my family has season tickets. So, you know, we might be able to do that. She said, who knows, maybe we could even see a World Series game. Now, in, in September, you don't know who's going to be in the World Series. You don't know that till October. So this was, you know, was this just the doctor blowing smoke or what? This was to be the 100th transplant in the history of children's, so it got some press coverage. And a picture was taken of Andrew and Dr. G going into the surgery for his transplant. And she had on her Red Sox operating room cap, and Andrew had on a Red Sox baseball cap, Um. which she told him he could wear in in the operating room. Oh, my word. And the reporter saw this and said, what's the deal with the Red Sox? You guys are in Texas. Why are you Red Sox? And she would explain to them about, you know, how they both love the Red Sox. 
a woman is watching TV. I mean, this is how screwy this story gets. A woman is watching TV in Dallas, and she sees the story of the Red Sox patient and the Red Sox doctor. And she says, I have to call my sister in Boston. She'll love to hear this story. Maybe she can do something with it. So she calls her sister in Boston and tells her the story. And her sister in Boston is married to a man named Larry Lucchino, who happens to be the president of the Boston Red Sox. Oh, my word. Andrew comes through his surgery with flying colors. The Red Sox overcome a huge deficit to the Cleveland Indians to make the 2007 World Series. Dr. G gets a page from, from Larry Lucchino saying, how can we help you? Ah. And the upshot, the upshot of the story is uh, Life Flight sent, gave, a, gave a medical jet with two pilots. The Texas Rangers kicked in 15 grand for fuel. They flew Dr. Jeez. G and Andrew and Andrew's mother to Boston. The Red Sox bus met them at Logan Airport and took them to Fenway Park. Oh. They put him in a private suite. They loaded him down with every kind of Red Sox gear. And then they said to Andrew, hey, kid, before the game, to celebrate three weeks out of transplant surgery, why don't you come down on the field and throw out the first pitch before game oh. two of the 2007 World Series? Oh. Unbelievable. Did I get you? Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Now, oh. that's, the, you know, that's the humanitarian side of it. The, mm-hmm. the um mm-hmm. The medical side of it is I have seen her sew a little shunt that looks like a piece of elbow macaroni onto a heart the size of a walnut while it's beating 130 beats a minute inside the kid's chest. I've seen her get up. She stands on a little stool when she operates because she's only five feet tall and she has to be able to see up on the table with the medical, with the male doctors. I've seen her get on that stool at four in the morning to start a transplant and not get off it until 7.15 p.m., no food, no water, oh no bathroom break. Oh, Nothing but that really? kid's chest. Oh. That's the kind of dedication that it takes to do what she does. That's why she's so special. Mm. Don't you want to read the book now, people? Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listeners, if you're just joining in with us, we're talking about the book A Surgeon's Story. And the author is so... You actually were in the OR. You got to watch all these surgeries. Mm-hmm. I imagine there were a lot of interns watching them, too. Uh, there, there are generally uh, two or three observers in at different times. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes the interns will actually do what I could not do, which is literally scrub in and, and stand. There's, a, there's a, an area, uh, like almost a line around the table, where if you have not scrubbed in fully, you can't go inside that line. That's the operating field. And okay. you know, the rest of us just have on masks and caps and scrubs, and we have to stay back against the wall. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there'll be interns. There'll be uh, medical students. I mean, she'll let almost anybody who wants to, if they have a legitimate reason to come watch. She, she's had high school students in. She's, you know, she, she wants mm-hmm. everybody to come in and see what it's all about. And mm-hmm. uh, it's it's it's... People keep asking me, well, isn't it kind of gross and disgusting and bloody? I said, no, actually, it's, there's almost no blood. And I know that sounds, if, you're, if your vision of surgery is a mash from television, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not like that. It, it's, I mean, they have a thing called a bovi, which is a scalpel that cauterizes while it cuts. It's mm-hmm. electronic. So as it cuts through skin and tissue, it e- immediately cauterizes it. And you see very little blood. It's amazing. And mm-hmm. uh, what you also see, here's the one that really freaked me out. The first heart transplant that I witnessed 
was a fairly big kid, a, a teenager, and they took the they took the diseased heart out, and when they take it out, they put it like in this big kind of butter tub thing and just push it aside sure. for later for the pathologist to look at it. So I I've never seen a heart close up. So I walked around the operating table to see this heart in this tub, and I'm looking down at it, and it beat. Oh my gosh! And I jumped about five feet, and it beat again. It keeps beating for about 15 minutes after it's taken out of the body. The nerve that's in there that tells it to beat is still in there. Oh, my. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh. So, it's, I mean, the, the stuff that I saw and the stuff that I learned will stay with me forever, believe me. But, uh, but the main thing that I got out of it is that, that uh, Dr. G is just such a blessing. If I needed heart surgery, I would beg her to take care of me because mm-hmm. there's, just, there's mm-hmm. nobody I'd trust more. And certainly if my, yes. you know, my grandchildren did, I would fly them from where they live to where she is to get her to do it. So. Yeah, I, I believe it was earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, I, I interviewed a heart surgeon. But he's also doing, um, I guess you would call it mechanical hearts that mm-hmm. he has put into people oh, yeah. that are waiting for yeah. a heart. Yeah. Those are and, called ventricular assist devices. And they run on batteries. Mm-hmm. So when he would take these individuals with him to do lectures, he had to plan the lectures around how long the batteries would last mm-hmm. <laughs> in, the, in the patients, you know. Course, Dr. G the, put a put, there's one there's one kind of that device called a Berlin Heart, which is German, obviously. And she put it in the youngest pediatric patient who'd ever received one. Who the girl, little girl was two years old, a little girl named Ryland, whose, whose story is one of the highlights of the book. And she okay. was on it for about two months. And it's, she has, you have this tube that's coming out of, your, out of your abdomen. And it hooks up to a little pump, and the blood goes out and goes through the machine and goes back in. The, and the pump, uh, it's just hanging out of your stomach, basically. It mm. makes, the, makes the heart pump more efficiently. And mm. uh, there are those kind of things. There are 3D models of hearts being made now that help surgeons visualize the heart they're going to work on before they do there's mm-hmm. robotic surgery it's 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 kind of it's kind of getting like star trek it's getting pretty mm-hmm. fancy but mm-hmm. that's good i mean you know that's the things that were things that required your chest being cut open five years ago can now be done with a catheter through your through your arm or your leg so that's mm. a, that's a big step forward she's also by the way um there are 220 something pediatric cardiac surgeons in the u.s only nine of them are women. Gee. So she's one of a select group. Hmm. Why do you suppose that is? Girls just aren't encouraged to go into science, or could be that it, it just—it's a very male medicine in general is a very male-dominated field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and you have to be willing to fight through that. And again, Chris is a fighter. There's no question about that. Yeah, uh, you, you have to be willing to take on people. And she had one uh, when she was an intern. One mentor—not even a mentor, really—just a, a, a supervisor—say to her, "You're never going to be a heart surgeon. You're just going to go home and have babies." And she just looked at oh. him and said, you know, swore under her breath. And now she is, as I said, one of the world's great pediatric heart mm-hmm. surgeons. So, yeah. It's, the worst thing anyone can—the worst thing anyone could say to her is, "You're not going to do this." <laughs> oh yeah, because it's just going to make her want to do it more. Yeah. She's, mm-hmm. and, and she, plus, mm-hmm. she has the most inquisitive mind of anybody I've ever known. I mean, she, she's learning new stuff every day just to learn it. And it's—I don't know how, as a surgeon, you can keep up with just the different names of drugs you have to know. 
There's mm-hmm. so many drugs that they have to deal with in, in treating patients. They, the, the, her memory is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And they usually do one, have really good memories. There was one drug that they use on post, post-operatively on transplant patients, and it's derived from tumor cells in mice. Mm. Go figure Bizarre. that out. Who figured to look at tumor cells in mice and find a drug for heart disease in humans? Bizarre. It's an amazing story. It really is. But that's the kind of person she is. That's Dr. Dr. Uh-huh. G, Christine Goulasarian. She's just she's a phenomenal person. She's now at Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami. And, oh, really? Uh, is, when did she, yeah, she, when did she there go there? About a year ago, oh. about a year ago she's going to develop a um, – they don't have a transplant program, so she's going to develop their transplant program. And um, she, she made it through. She actually lived in the hospital for the four days of the hurricane recently. Oh my gosh! Uh, but she's uh, she's she's plying her trade in Miami now. Oh, I bet you miss her. That's really yeah. But we you know we talk and we 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 get down there occasionally. Yeah, I'll be darned. Well, she just decided to take on another challenge. Well, she loves the water too. You know, she loves living by the mm. water. So okay. Was she able to mentor somebody else when oh, she left? She's she's had dozens and dozens of people. Uh, well, how about In women? Fact, Has the, she mentored any women? That... Oh yes, the 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 the, fi- the finale. The finale. What's the word? The afterword of the book is written by a young medical student named uh, Lizzie Cochran, who I've known since okay. she was about nine years old, and who, when she started in medical school, I introduced her to Dr. G, and uh, she, after spending some time with Dr. G, Lizzie changed her objective from being a, a cancer surgeon to being a heart surgeon, pediatric heart surgery. And uh, she wrote the, she wrote the afterwards. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's, she's inspired hundreds of people. There's no question. She's, uh, mm-hmm. she's left her mark in that way too. How in the world did she do a heart transplant on a one week old baby? Well, if you can envision in it's your so mind, tiny. we are, we are on, we are, we are on, we have no pictures and we can't do that. Uh, imagine you're holding a walnut in your hand. Okay. Okay. You got the walnut picture? Mm-hmm. That walnut is the size of a newborn baby's heart. That's how big they are, or actually how small they are. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. in one sense, it was easier than a transplant on an older kid because there had not been time for scars and adhesions to form and make the heart cling to different parts of the body. But obviously, on the other hand, it's very difficult because... For instance, resuturing something like the aorta, I can't even come up. The aorta in this baby was maybe half the diameter of a pencil, mm-hmm. and she sewed it back. She sewed the aorta back onto this new heart. I mean, that you know, I can't sew a button on a shirt, and and mm-hmm. she can do these amazing mm-hmm. things with these teeny tiny little hearts, and uh, it's just it's inspiring to see, and it's I guess that explains why it takes almost 15 years of training before they let you do it. But she, uh, the, the actually the one week old, the one week old transplant went very well. Yeah, I um, on a personal note, my niece was born, wherein the aorta was reversed on her heart, so it was mm-hmm. pumping blood away from the heart, not mm-hmm. into it, and she had a very successful surgery. Um, so I'm assuming what you what that was it called? It was transposition of the great arteries, is what it was called. Probably, probably the aorta and the pulmonary artery were, were reversed. Uh huh. And, uh-huh. and that's one of actually that's one of Dr. G's favorite surgeries because once you all you do is cut the aorta and the pulmonary artery and you switch them to where they're supposed to be, 
Mm-hmm. And, and once you do it, that's it. The kid is now perfect. And, and there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no drugs that you have to take to prevent rejection. Or, or I mean, you know, once, the, once the sutures heal, kid has a perfectly normal heart. So that's, that's, her, that's one of her yeah, favorite ones um, to do. She's in her, my niece is in her 20s now, and she was living in Denver, Colorado, and she was starting to have some issues. So they brought her back home. Um, you know, I'm not privy to what the medical mm-hmm. issue was relating to the heart, but anyway, it's interesting stuff. I'll tell you. Well, one of the things about heart transplants you? is that when you do uh-huh. a heart transplant in a child, the heart doesn't grow along with the child. So there comes a time when if the kid has grown a lot, they need another transplant. Oh my gosh. So, in fact, there's Andrew Madden, who threw out the first pitch at the right. World Series, just got a new heart about a month and a half ago. Oh. But that's, that's part of the deal of, of you know, kids, getting, kids getting new hearts. They, don't, they just don't grow for some reason. Uh, well, and then he had to be on a waiting list for one, too, right? Yep. Yep. There's Gosh, always just, a waiting list. It's got uh, to be emotionally so draining for the parents and for him. It, there was a, one of the stories in the book is about a uh, – a young, very young girl, two-year-old girl who had something called um, homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. There's a mouthful Could for he? you, which really means is. basically that her liver couldn't process cholesterol, and okay. her cholesterol, your normal cholesterol blood count is about 200 milliliters. Her cholesterol count was 1,040. Mm. She had a heart attack when she was two years old. Oh. She had so much cholesterol in her system, so they had to oh. do a transplant. They had to do a heart-liver joint transplant. Her father had, that when you go into the hospital and you're waiting for transplant, you, they give you a pager, and they tell you, the moment that pager goes off, you've got to be ready because we're going to go. Mm-hmm. That means we've got the organs and we're going to go. And after three days with the pager, he happened to be standing in his hospital room, and he looked at the pager, and he yelled at it. He said, why won't you go off? And it mm-hmm. went off. Oh. The moment he yelled at it. Oh, gosh. And they went ahead and did the youngest uh, heart-liver joint transplant that's ever been done, two-year-old girl. There are about 9,000 stories we could talk about, but we don't I have bet. I bet. I bet. You know, the doctor, she has a motto. If you can't operate in heels, you can't operate. Where did that come from? Is that because she's five feet tall so she runs around in heels all the time no she does run around heels all the time not generally in surgery but what happened was she was a resident at barnes jewish hospital in st louis and she had gone out on uh an organ uh, retrieval where the, the doctors will go to get organs to bring back for transplant and uh it was a lung retrieval and she went out on that and she came back and when she got back to the hospital she thought that she was done but the surgeon said to her why don't you scrub in and help me with the with the lung transplant which you know when you're a resident yeah you want to help do all the mm-hmm. surgeries you can so she she scrubbed in she did the surgery and when the surgery was over she walked away from the table and one of the nurses looked at her and she said you just did 10 hours of surgery in 4 inch prada heels Oh, and Chris my. just laughed, and she walked over to the white marker board, and she wrote down that saying, if you can't operate in heels, you can't okay. operate. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, have a, I have a really great um, doctor, primary care doctor, and she's probably about five feet. She runs around in heels. So that's why I made that comment, because um, she had to have a foot surgery as a result as well. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I've never worn heels, so I, don't, I can't. I can't. Yeah, well, it's, 
it's like one of the worst things you can you can do for your feet <laughs> is to be in in high heels. Well, generally she'll uh, have she'll have running shoes on for surgery because as, as yeah, you said, she's yeah, on her feet all day. Too, and, that's just uh, too much. But that's just her, you know. That that's that's her sense of humor. I mean, it's just it's infectious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think probably one of the biggest challenges of of writing a book um, <clears throat> that's medical oriented is understanding the medical terminology number one, and then being able to translate that in terms mm-hmm. um, which you have accomplished in the surgeon's story. How did you go about that? Well, I did uh, obviously dozens of hours of interviews with Dr. G about about both her life and about what I had seen in the operating room. And whenever she would explain something to me using medical terminology, I would uh, go back afterward and say, okay, now explain, see this phrase here, explain it to me again. Like idiopathic mm-hmm. dilated cardiomyopathy. I didn't know what that meant. Idiopathic means they don't know why it happens. Cardiomyopathy means heart muscle enlarging getting, and getting sick. So what I would do is I've divided the book into two different things. There's, a, there's my story of following Dr. G around, and then there's her story, which is told all in her words in italics. I didn't, I didn't want to paraphrase her. I wanted her to speak her own words. But when there's a medical term, I'll put parentheses in, and I'll put, the, I'll put a definition of what it is. Okay. So that so that the reader doesn't have to go jumping around looking for a glossary or something. So it's right there, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, some of it may actually not be descriptive enough. I don't know, but I think there's enough in there that people will be able to get the gist of. Uh, yeah, of I think of you've done happened. a really good. I think you've done an excellent job of explaining well, things. I learned um, a lot. That's for sure. I know. I learned I couldn't yeah, be a surgeon. I know that. Uh, you could stand if up you that really. Could if you really, really wanted to. No, it's organic chemistry would have killed me. I, I know that. <laughs> I'm an entertainer. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I could, I'll play uh, one on TV, but I'm not. I'm not one for real. You're not. <laughs> no. Well, why did you get started volunteering at the Children's Hospital? Well, it was. It's one of those classic uh, things about. I've been uh, in Dallas for a long time. I've been very successful. Uh, at the time I started, I was uh, one of the radio announcers for the Dallas Cowboys, which is a prime job in the sports world. And I had just been very fortunate, and I wanted to give some of that back to the city, to the community. And I had always admired what they did at Children's. So I called them and said, do you guys take volunteers? And they said, yes. And I said, sign me up. And when I got <laughs> you little idea of my odd sense of humor, um, you get a badge, you know, a hospital badge. Sure. ID badge. And... When I started volunteering in 1997, I guess it was, um, they gave me the badge with my name on it, and they said, you don't have to, volunteers don't have to have a picture on your badge, but you can have a picture if you want. And I said, okay, thank you. And I thought, hmm, he left a big loophole there. He didn't say the picture had to be me. So my volunteer badge has a picture of my name and a picture of Paul Newman. Because <laughs> if I'm going to wear somebody's face on my, on my shirt, it's going to be somebody who looks better than I do. Uh, well, what, what have you, you know, what have been your tasks as a volunteer? I work in the, um, if you're a medical person, I work in the PACU, the post-anesthesia care unit, which is known to most people as the recovery room. And I have just, I'm there to assist this staff of phenomenal nurses who are just the most amazing, caring, giving people in the world. 
And uh, one of the things that I do, because my shift starts Tuesdays at 1 p.m., and by the time I get there, the nurses are all really hungry because they can't go to lunch until the patient they have has been discharged. So I walk in at 1 o'clock with this gigantic bag filled with candy that I stop and get at the drugstore. And I just plop it down on the desk so that they can have something to eat to keep them going until they go to lunch. Oh. But I just, you know, I, I do it. I help move patients up and down to different floors, and I clean beds, and I stock shelves, and I, whatever they need, okay. I do. Wow. And if you, and if you, if, if, if to whoever, whoever's listening, there is no greater feeling in the world than volunteering. And mm-hmm. again, to mention Paul Newman, who is my hero, he said, what could be better than reaching your hand out to someone who's less fortunate than you are? It's very true. Yep. You know, I was a candy striper as a teenager. Mm-hmm. It's, put in it's, a lot there's, of hours. There's no, feel, there's no feeling like it because you get so much more out of it than you put into it. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just, it's inspiring. It really is. I mean, I would volunteer in the OR, but they don't need volunteers in there. They don't need amateurs in there who don't know what they're doing. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. just took pictures. That was all I did in there. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh. Jeez. Want to share anything else out of your book that um, would in, uh, instill people to want to be a volunteer or, better yet, to buy your book? Ah, well, that's the, that's the one we're going for. I mean, it, it, what, mm-hmm. what this book, I think, shows is if you're a fan of Grey's Anatomy or Chicago Hope or whatever, ER, any medical show, mm-hmm. this book shows you what it's really like. Mm-hmm. And I've had six or seven different doctors who've read this book who have all said almost the same thing. Every medical student should read this book to find out what they're going to go through. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the stories of the amount of education that's required to get to her level is is really almost daunting. And mm-hmm. uh but then when you see, the, again, the caring and the dedication and the fact that she's just, she wants to help so much, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it really inspires you. And it, and it, and it's, and it makes you think, uh, all I know, I, I talk to doctors differently since I spend time around her because now I will make them, uh, all right, wait, no, don't get up and run off to your next patient. You, you sit here and see if you explain this to me till I understand it. Because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. my doctors, I'm holding to a higher standard now since I've been around Dr. G. But um, what would make you want to read the book is that it really is, it's, it's as good a behind-the-scenes look as you're going to get at the operating room unless you're on the table. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be on the table. No. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. Well, you so want to be that guy if you've been in a serious accident. Well, you know, yeah. She did some trauma work as an intern, and she, and she really liked, she liked it, but she only liked and this sounds kind of gory, but once again, you have to understand, Chris, she's, she speaks the truth. She said, we all wanted the big, serious, penetrating chest wound. We didn't want the drunk who was, you know, in the, having DTs and throwing up. We wanted the mm-hmm. really serious stuff where you had to do the real major, quick, instant medical sure. stuff. And she said her survival rate was really good. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but fortunately, she settled on heart surgery. So it's just, you know, if, if, if you're into medicine, if you're into children, if you're into hospitals, if you're into just a story that will make you sit up and go, holy cow, I can't believe there are people who do this. Uh, Surgeon's Story would be the book, and Amazon would be the place to get it. Well, great. That's great. So, again, 
A Surgeon's Story, written by Mark Aristano. I don't know if I'm saying your name correctly. You're saying it perfectly. Thank you. Good. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and giving us some insight into why the book was written. And better yet, I encourage all listeners to pick up a copy. Uh, It'll give you a whole different perspective on what really goes on in the operating rooms of hospitals. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Take care. Continue your great work. Thank you. I will. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you so much for listening in. And please return next Wednesday for another great guest and another great show. Until then, be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? 